This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. No one has a crystal ball to predict the future, but over the years we've checked in with Jim Dater, Professor Emeritus at the University of Hawaii's Research Center for Futurist Studies. We thought this was a good time to circle back, given the upheaval of our global economy. He was believed to be the first one in Hawaii to get a glimpse into how computer technology would change our lives, and that was like 50 years ago. He was part of a chorus calling to diversify our economy since we are so dependent on tourism. We talked to him yesterday afternoon about navigating through this COVID crisis. Talking about tourism now is very frustrating because we have said many, many times, everybody agrees, it's a great industry, but it's a, a very fragile industry, extremely fragile industry, and we need to base our economy on something else. Uh, instead. And, of course, the present moment of the virus and the economic uh, shutdown is, I hope, being taken as an opportunity for rethinking uh, what we do everywhere in the world, especially here in Hawaii. I guess I think of seize the day, you know, it is an opportunity. seize the day indeed. Seize the future. (laughs) So uh, we are hearing from residents across the state that because we have so few tourists now that it's a chance to figure out what our carrying capacity is and and how to move forward. Well, I think so, but it indeed it's more than that. One of the things that has not been a uh, up-and-front part of the discussion about what Hawaii or any other place will be like after the crisis pass is sea level rise, uh, climate change, the uh, fragility of the economic system, which has simply made more and more people poorer and poorer and fewer and fewer extremely rich. It wasn't exactly a robust, wonderful system working for everybody. And we might have had very low unemployment here in Hawaii, but a lot of the most people, many people, had to work two, three, or four jobs to survive. So it's not as though we're returning to an ideal state. We have to use this crisis as an opportunity of thinking about something much better. And because we've had to rely on technology during this time, whether it's distance learning or Zoom meetings, uh, the technology is a key player in this. I agree. Uh, Again, I have long uh, been an advocate of moving towards distance education and was one of the first to go online with classes or to include a chat uh, aspect to my live courses and so forth. And it's always seemed to me uh, that of all places in the world, Hawaii should be a leader in uh, tele-everything because of the fact that uh, we are isolated from the rest of the world And also the islands are physically separated from each other in ways that cry out for electronic governance and electronic everything else. So I hope that people's experience with electronics now as a replacement for traveling somewhere and talking to people has been positive or at least positive enough, they're willing to think about that as playing a more intimate part in the future. So while you were maybe one of the early adapters or early adopters... Yeah, I was. I was uh, on something sponsored by the National Science Foundation that enabled me to be the first civilian, not the first, first person. That would have been somebody in the U.S. military, but the first civilian, the first person at the University of Hawaii to be 
uh, on what was called computer conferencing back then. And I suddenly was getting information from around the world that no one, none of my colleagues got because they were still relying on books floating across in boats for information and so forth. For a short period of time, I looked like a real futurist. I knew things that other people didn't know because of that experience. Do you remember what year that was? Uh, it was in the 70s. Like I said, you were in the forefront, and maybe there are there were many professors who weren't ready to embrace this concept, but were forced to. Well, it wasn't so much the professors, although that's the case, but you might be surprised to know how many students would drop my courses, but I told them they were going to have to be in a, a chat uh, situation as well. They didn't know. They were afraid of the technology. They didn't know how to use it. But let me tell you that once students uh, began to engage in discussion among themselves, I lost all uh, fantasies about my role as a teacher and about what education was actually going on. I was just one of the guys trying to get a word in edgewise as they were discussing things among themselves. I discovered things about what they thought about what I was saying that I had never known before. And now we have whole generations of people who are brought up in, in this technology with operating systems and, 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 and digital this and digital that, <laughs> uh, just right. changing and so quickly. Right, and they can't imagine it. I hope they don't have to imagine a world without it. So I really hope that folks at the University of Hawaii now are taking advantage of this, and they ought to with, a, with their president, because David Lasner was head of the computing center uh, as his original job at the university. And he and I talked a lot about about the fact that the wave of the future should be towards electronic education and not simply bricks and mortar. You just recently wrote something up for the South Korean government and the media there, and it, it's kind of uh, caught fire. Talk about that. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I, you never know what's going to work and what isn't going to work, but a, a PowerPoint presentation that I did over Zoom for the Institute for Strategic Security somehow got picked up by somebody in the press. And I literally am every day asked to do something new. I just discovered that Wired Magazine is opening a Korean language version, and they have asked me to contribute to the first issue of that Wired Korea. Uh, I am happy to do this because I was one of the first subscribers to the old English language Wired when it was a very futures-oriented magazine. I still subscribe to it. Anybody who has ever heard me yammer about the future knows that I always say you, you cannot uh, predict the future, but you can forecast alternative futures and then strive towards preferred futures. And basically, I believe all of the different images of the future fall into one of four categories. So whatever I'm asked to talk about the future of anything, I have one future that is more or less a continuation of the present. Uh, there's a lot of change, but it, it's still based upon what's happening now. Another based upon collapse, and of course that's sort of what we're in now, are facing the possibility of an economic and social collapse that the, in our, because of our response to the coronavirus. And then the third is called a disciplined society, which means instead of 
pursuing endless economic growth, we have other values based upon other things, uh, perhaps religious, perhaps cultural, whatever other values other than economic growth there are. And then there are some people, this used to be the stock and trade of futurists of transformation, that the technology that we were just talking about really is transforming us as individuals. And we have transformed what was once a garden, uh, once a wilderness into a garden. And now it's uncertain what the future of our planet, the biosphere, will be. So that's a, we're in a period of transformation, people. So, so basically what I said is at this point we don't know, no one knows, uh, what the future of the coronavirus itself is, uh, when, if ever, it will end, whether there would be immunity to it, either through herd behavior or through vaccines, or whether this is going to be like the common cold, a something that reappears year after year, but with somewhat more severity than the cold. You know, one of the things about Korea, uh, even though I lived many years in Japan and worked with, in Japan quite a, for quite a long time before I came to Hawaii, the last 10 or 15 years I've been asked over and over to do things in Korea where they have just become tremendously futures-oriented. That's based upon their, that's why they have been able to to move from being one of the poorest nations uh, on the face of the earth in the uh, mid-50s at the end of the Korean War to one of the richest nations now uh, by following a model of economic development. But they also know that that is perhaps at an end, or at least I'm working with them and understanding they can't be followers anymore. They need to become what is very difficult, they tell me, very difficult for them to do, to become innovators and leaders. And if they could, they still have functioning governments that the citizens more or less trust. They have extremely intelligent people. Let's use that for creativity and not just for improving what other people have done. Okay, so while South Korea may be warming to that idea, why can't we do that here in Hawaii? Well, I... <laughs> What a great question. If there's ever any other place in the world that needs to take this opportunity to do the same thing, we have an excellent educational system in spite of all the complaints. I think that our higher education facilities have produced great people. I think we ought to encourage them now to be creative in th uh, using this opportunity to be creative about the future of Hawaii itself. When I first came to Hawaii back in 1969, Governor Burns and the political, economic, educational leaders of Hawaii planned something called Hawaii 2000, a huge citizen-based activity of imagining what they wanted Hawaii to be like in the year 2000 from the year 1970. I think we ought to take this crisis as an opportunity to do the same thing now, to have us rethink what we want the future of Hawaii to be beyond. Uh, what the uh, what it was before. All right, Carpe Diem, seize the day. That's it. 2020, we, we need the clarity as we navigate forward. Right. All right, well, Jim Dater, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you very much. 
That was Jim Dater, Professor Emeritus of the Future Studies Research Center at UH Manoa. It's now time to take a look at what's happening around the rest of the world. Uh, Britain's prime minister says the country has passed its peak of its coronavirus outbreak and France prepares for an unprecedented economic slump in Europe. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the coronavirus global update on Thursday the 30th of April. I'm Oliver Conway. The British prime minister says the UK has passed the peak of its coronavirus outbreak. We hear from France amid warnings of an unprecedented economic slump across Europe and a new long-lasting disinfectant. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has led the UK's daily coronavirus news conference for the first time since recovering from COVID-19. He said the death toll here had risen to 26,711. Britain is now the world's third worst affected nation in terms of fatalities after the US and Italy. But Mr Johnson said that the National Health Service had been able to cope without ever becoming overwhelmed. He said next week he would give details of how the lockdown could be lifted. I can confirm today that for the first time we are past the peak of this disease. We're past the peak and we're on the downward slope. And we have so many reasons to be hopeful for the long term. The UK is leading international efforts to find a vaccine. Today, Oxford University has announced a partnership with AstraZeneca to develop what they believe could soon be a means of inoculating ourselves against this disease. But until this day comes, and I'm afraid we cannot say exactly when it may be, we're going to have to beat this disease by our growing resolve and ingenuity. The head of the European Central Bank has warned that the coronavirus pandemic could lead to an unprecedented economic slump across the continent. Christine Lagarde told reporters that the Eurozone economy could shrink by as much as 12% this year. France has registered its worst economic figures since records began in 1949, with GDP falling by 5.8%. Sophie Pedder is the Paris bureau chief for The Economist newspaper. Could things get even worse? Well, I think so. You know, the figures are obviously dramatic and historic for France in the post-war period for this quarter. But what's on everyone's minds here is that the second quarter of this year is going to be even worse so that we're going to be looking at yet another historic contraction. And that's really defining the mood in France is all the talk is about how to minimise this and how to try to bring back activity, because at the moment, in the short term, things are only going to get worse. Meanwhile, Germany is to further ease its coronavirus restrictions. It will reopen museums, galleries, zoos and playgrounds and allow religious services to resume. Royal Dutch Shell is reducing its dividend payment for the first time since the Second World War because of the huge fall in oil prices. Its quarterly net income dropped more than $2 billion compared to last year. The energy giant, a key investment for many pension funds around the world, will cut its quarterly payout from 47 to 16 cents per share. The International Energy Agency, meanwhile, says the reduction in energy use as a result of the pandemic could lead to a record fall in the amount of carbon being released into the atmosphere. The IEA said CO2 emissions could drop by almost 8% this year. But will it continue? Here's our environment correspondent, Roger Harabin. It's really hard to say. In Wuhan, they've had a, a rebound, which uh, some people are calling traffic revenge. Um, and so numbers of car journeys have gone up again. But elsewhere, there's a possibility that they could be held down with people liking to do video conferencing. And it's the task of politicians to get a green recovery from this COVID recession.
Researchers in Hong Kong say they've come up with a long-life disinfectant, a coating that can be sprayed on worktops, handles or lift buttons and which lasts for weeks. It was developed over the past 10 years in response to the SARS epidemic. Professor Joseph Kwan from the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology explains how it works. The uh, polymer material that we use for enclosing, encapsulating the disinfectants, they are heat sensitive, meaning that once it's on the surface, when somebody touches on it, the polymer material feels the increase in temperature from the body temperature, they will open up and release the disinfectants. Lockdown measures are having a dramatic effect on how we live our lives, but also on how we sleep. Many people are reporting unusually vivid and strange dreams. Harvard University professor Deirdre Barrett has spent the past few weeks assessing more than 6,000 dreams. She says most are nightmares brought on by anxiety, but this was her personal favourite. One woman dreamed that she turned herself into a giant antibody and kind of like the Incredible Hulk, her anger about the virus gave her this superhuman strength and she was rampaging around the world killing all of the virus. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. In 1836, a woman in New York was gruesomely murdered. Two newspapers described the alleged murderer in very different ways. They both looked at the same crime and had entirely different interpretations based on what they thought their readers would prefer to hear. Sound familiar? The deep roots of fake news, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Tonight at 7, following says you. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Many local restaurants have been closed since March. Will going into a bar or a restaurant be the same if the COVID crisis eases? Civil Beats' Chad Blair joins us this morning and tells us what restaurant owners are thinking. Good, Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so, you know, you, you work in an area where there are lots of restaurants. Yeah, Stuart Yurton, our business reporter, actually opens his story uh, with uh, Chris Kajioka, who was planning, who did open up Muro Kaimuki, which is nice because that's where we are. Civil Beat has their offices on Wailai and 10th. But what a rough time to open a restaurant. And Stuart goes into the data. I, I didn't realize this, but the industry employs here in the islands 85,000 people. We're talking restaurants and bars. That works out to be Hawaii's largest private employer. Uh, but of course, there's been an statewide shutdown in effect till May 31st. Some places are reopening, but restaurants and bars, different story there. There is takeout allowed, uh, but this is really causing a lot of anxiety for what is already, you know, at best a marginal business, right? A lot of restaurants open and close all the time. It can be difficult to sustain. 
Yeah, I mean, it is stunning. Just a, a, on my street alone, you know, I've got a chef uh, who works in Waikiki. He's he's out of work. Uh, you know, he's out fishing in Waimanalo to get food on the table. <laughs> yeah, you know, this uh, you hear a report just came out and said since uh, the January to April period, this industry, restaurants and bars, have lost 36,000 jobs here locally. Now, you can compare that to hotels, 23,000 jobs lost. The largest, by the way, is the retail industry. I mean, Alamoana Shopping Center, all the malls closed, 45,000. This is really a shock in particular for restaurants because it was projected to be actually a a growth market, one of the fastest growing markets, industries over the next 10 years. Obviously, that has changed. Right. And, And everything now is, you know, pushing the takeout orders, but that's just not enough to sustain the businesses. No, it's not. And remember that a lot of the folks that work in bars and restaurants are already people making, you know, on average about $30,000 a year. These aren't folks that have large savings accounts. Uh, So you can maybe get by a month or two or so, but if this lasts months and years, that's going to go way beyond the federal uh, bailout that's helping folks get by. Even those SBA loans that are helping, it's about $2 billion in loans. Uh, they are helping a lot. Under that payroll protection program, uh, a restaurant owner, for example, if, if they use the money to pay their employees, they don't have to then pay that money back. But that's going to run out by the end of June. So uh, is takeout enough? Uh, people very much want to resume opening, and especially when you're seeing things like car washes and, and flower shops and others gradually phasing these back in. Right. And then, you know, the landlords are, are probably wondering about the rent that they're supposed to collect. Absolutely. Can they maybe hold off a little bit on that? And if you do reopen, do you have everybody stand six feet apart? <laughs> you know, and what about tourists? Tourists are the largest market. But here's another thing. It's an existential question in a lot of ways. Do you then, let's say you run a sushi place, do you then have your workers wearing gloves and masks to deliver your food? I mean, how how is that going to work? It may change our whole concept of certainly high-end or fine dining. What are we going to be comfortable with as a, as a customer, uh, given the lingering effects of co- uh, coronavirus? Right. So it's going to be a whole new world, uh, yeah. dining and uh, bar hopping. <laughs> be an interesting summer. It will indeed. Thank you, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. That was Civil Beats uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read uh, Stuart Yurton's full story, visit civilbeat.org. banks and financial institutions are still open to help customers, both individuals and businesses, get through this crisis. Iris Sakeda is the Hawaii Commissioner of Financial Institutions. When we spoke to her two weeks ago, the Small Business Administration's Payroll Protection Program, or PPP as we just mentioned, had been tapped out. But another $310 billion opened up on Monday. After the first round of funding, $1.9 billion had been approved for more than 11,000 Hawaii businesses. That's an average of $164,000 per company. And as of last Friday, Hawaii banks had received 22,000 applications 
applications for PPP loans. While those loans are making the headlines, there are the resources for local folks. Ikeda spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai about financial assistance for businesses and consumers. So one thing that we're trying to urge all of the small businesses to do is to contact their banks or, you know, look at the bank's website because all of the banks are, all of our local banks anyway, are offering different financial assistance programs either for loan deferrals or loan modifications. They're offering their own loan programs. They're offering consumer loans. So, you know, the depending on the needs of the particular consumer or small business, there's a bunch of different things that, um, you know, our banks are offering. Also on the Small Business Administration website, you can find the other small business loans that are may be available to these small businesses. So the emergency disaster loans are also available because this has been a national disaster. So those program funds are actually available. It's a different application form, but certainly they should contact their bank if they think that they want to apply for the emergency disaster loan program. So there's funds available outside of just the the latest package. And I, I believe we talked uh, to Jane Sawyer about the SBA emergency program. So I didn't know that that's uh, still available for folks. Yeah, I think people have been or businesses have been focused on the PPP. So they haven't really been focused on trying to um, apply for the emergency disaster loans. And so I think now businesses are refocused and, you know, trying to see what else is available. And so the emergency disaster loans are maybe the next thing that they can apply for. Maybe we could switch gears to consumers. What's available through the banks right now? So right now... Right now, all of our banks are offering um, loan deferments or loan modifications. Um, If you have a credit card through one of our local banks, um, some of our local banks are still um, offering credit cards. They can defer payments on those too. You know, they have, some of our banks are offering, or I think probably many of them are offering um, small consumer loans, like the small dollar lending, up to about $8,000. Some are offering more, some are offering less. There just is a a wealth of, or a number of different programs that each bank is offering different consumers. All of the banks have branches open in the community. Not all the branches are open, but there are branches open in the community for all of our banks. So, you know, certainly people could stop by and ask um, the bank employees if they, you know, want to speak to somebody in person or, you know, definitely, definitely call the call center which has been, you know, pretty busy, as you might imagine. Or, you know, if they have availability to check the Internet, they should check the Internet sites for their bank for the different programs available. But, you know, the main focus is that if consumers actually need financial help, they need to reach out to their bank. Um, Banks are not going to know if you need help or not. You know, if you don't reach out to them, they're going to think that you're going to be paying your bills as normal. And each, each situation is going to be different, right? So, you know, depending on um, where in your own life cycle you are, you might have only credit cards. You might have a mortgage and credit cards. You know, you might have a, um, a regular consumer loan that you already had existing um, prior to the pandemic that you need some help <clears throat> with. So, you know... 
everyone's situation is different and banks are working with all of their customers to try to address those different situations. And, and you talked about the branches. Uh, is, how are banks keeping con- consumers safe? Uh, Mary Kirk Caldwell said uh, everyone doing business in Honolulu needs to wear masks, but banks are exempt because uh, prevent against uh, robberies and things like that. How are banks keeping folks safe? What other devices or, or resources are available for them to, to stay safe and healthy? Right. So, the um, you know, people are still wearing masks inside the branches. You know, that's perfectly fine. What we're asking, what the banks are asking people to do is, you know, when they step into the branch, kind of unmask for, you know, two or three seconds so that their, you know, the customer's face can be picked up on one of the many cameras within the bank. And then, you know, remask. Most of our bank branches have plexiglass in between the customer and the bank teller or the bank service um, person. So, you know, you can't reach out and touch them anymore. There's a you know, little slot where um, money can be passed through. But I think that for the most part, you know, our banks are trying to be as safe as they can for both the employees and for customers, right? The banks have also marked up on their um, queue line, you know, where the six feet intervals are, you know, so I think that the, and they have bank personnel within the branches trying to keep people distant from each other so that they're not walking too close to each other or, you know, passing too closely to another customer. So hopefully with all of that, you know, people will feel um, comfortable going to the banks. Of course, we're asking people not to go to the banks but to do, you know, their, their banking online or through an ATM. Also, at the ATMs, if you can unmask for a second or two to be captured at the ATM camera, that would be great also. You know, what we're worried about or what we're concerned about, of course, as you mentioned, is you know, bank robberies or, you know, someone being held up at an ATM. So we want to make sure that everyone feels safe while doing all of these transactions at the bank. Let's see, I... Just been reading this uh, that about the stimulus check. Is it difficult for folks to open a bank account right now if they get the check in the mail? You're a taxpayer and usually get a check. Mm-hmm. Can you go into the bank right now and open the bank account fairly easily? Yes, you can still open a bank account at the bank. Um, you know, you have to bring all of the ID that's that's appropriate um, along with your check. It might take a little bit longer because you know of the social distancing going on. Um, I don't know how close the new accounts person is sitting next to the, the customer trying to open an account. But I think that the, the other thing that's going on is that if people pay their taxes before and have a bank account, if you go to the IRS website, you can put in a bank account number now so that the stimulus check will be placed right into your um, bank account without, you know, that your bank account being kind of open to the IRS for any other reason. So you can, you know, there's a way now that you can just insert your bank account in there. That's probably the fastest way to get your stimulus check. So the first wave of of citizens that got got a stimulus check were one of the were the people that had bank accounts because they could just wire all of those into the many bank accounts. And then the next wave, of course, is 
um, probably all of the people that are going to get paper checks. So, you know, certainly if you have a bank account and you used to get a paper uh, check as your tax return, you know, go ahead and try to fill out the, the IRS form to get your stimulus check just direct deposited into your account. And you'll get it a lot faster. I also saw some news reports about, I think, paycheck lenders, but also some banks that were uh, withholding stimulus checks if uh, the customer had debts already with the institutions. Has have you heard any reports on that? I'm not sure if this is under your under your jurisdiction. Yeah. So there there are some of, some of the mainland banks are actually withholding the um, stimulus checks um, because there were prior debts or. You know, they're paying overdraft fees. And so some of the mainland banks were um, actually taking those those checks or not giving the customer the full amount of the stimulus checks. So our local banks are not doing that. You know, they, they certainly believe that, you know, folks are depending on this check coming in. And so they have volunteered not to do that. So if you have a local bank, you know, you're probably in better shape. Um, there's a, you know, a bunch of citizens in Hawaii who have mainland bank accounts, and those may be affected. From the bank's point of view, how are they preparing for what could be a large amount of defaults on loans? They are, you know, they've been preparing for, you know, different scenarios of different pandemics. So in a way that our banks have been um, pretty prepared when this pandemic came around. You know, they did have to tweak those um those disaster recovery programs. But, you know, for the most part, because we train once a year as sort of a mandated um, requirement by the state, that, you know, I think that most of our banks were already in this, you know, to kind of dust off what they had previously had for, you know, previous pandemic. You know, one of them was the swine flu, one was the bird flu. There was, you know, some other different pandemics going around. And so, you know, I think our banks were pretty prepared, actually, um, you know, once we believed, the state of Hawaii believed that we were going to be affected by this pandemic situation. So, you know, I give our banks a lot of credit for being as prepared as they were, even though they had to tweak their particular programs. The testing that we do every year, I think, has been paying off because we were so prepared. Anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, so I just want to reiterate that, you know, each of our local banks are offering financial assistance from mortgage loan deferments, credit card deferments, consumer loans. You know, everyone, all of the banks are um, waiving ATM fees. Um, You know, if you go to a different bank's um, ATM, you won't be paying a fee. You should check your own bank to see if they're going to charge you a fee for using an outside um, ATM. But the... um, You know, for the most part, the community needs to check with their bank's website or call center to figure out, you know, what sort of financial assistance they can get. Our large banks are running commercials, um, you know, try to publicize that this is available. Call us and we can help you. You know, our banks are very safe. You know, your money is still safe within each bank. They are insured by the FDIC. So, you know, customers should... Continue to maintain your bank account. There are branches open for each one of our banks, so they're you know in the community near you. You should be able to find a bank branch if you have to go in. ATMs are still functional. You know we have plenty of cash available if you need it. 
you know, we just want to make sure that everyone knows that, you know, our banking community is very strong and is out there willing to help you if you need financial assistance. Great. Iris Ikeda, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Iris Ikeda, the state's banking commissioner, talking with HPR's Jason Ubai. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Arlene Goldbard, author of The Culture of Possibility and a novel, The Wave. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how shaping our stories shapes our lives. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands, now and in the future. Matson.com. It is part of the human condition that's been around since ancient times. The ancient word acedia has said to come in and out of our vocabulary over time. Monks in isolation struggled with it. And Hawaii resident Kathleen Norris learned more about it after living near a monastery in the Dakotas years ago. She wrote a book about the condition that made it on the New York Times bestseller list. The book was entitled Asidi and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. During our recent isolation triggered by this health crisis, someone saw the parallels and flagged it as a way to explain what some of us may be feeling. Well, I had a shock about a week ago when a friend was saying, is anybody else feeling this kind of mental restlessness and anger and boredom? And then someone I don't even know had posted a photograph of uh, the cover of my book on a, called Acedia. And I was so surprised to see it there, but I thought, of course, because we're not used to being isolated. We're used to being busy and working and going places. And all of a sudden, having to slow down, having to stay at home, not having so much to do, this thing called acedia is, is likely to strike. And it's an ancient word. It's never really translated. It, it, it has no exact English translation, but it's basically a nasty combination of restlessness and boredom coming in all at once and often some anger with it. And I think, you know, all of us will are experiencing it. So it will experience it at some time in our lives when you, you know, you're really bored and you're restless and anything you think of to do, you think, ah, I don't want to do that. I mean, it's that, that sort of just, it's a nasty condition. But I think right now we're sort of opening, we've opened ourselves up to it because we can't do our normal things. We can't have our normal distractions. We're kind of forced to live with ourselves. It's a kind of unsettledness. It's somewhere between the blues and, and, and being mel- melancholy. Yeah, the blues, the blahs, you know. And, and, uh, but I, what for me I always is that it's that, nest, it's that combination of both restlessness and boredom where everything I think of that I could do, I think, no, that's too boring. But I, want, I need to do something. What am I going to do? And, and it's, that is, is a thing that, that is, I, I think is, is hardest, I think, for me. And it's an ancient word. It, 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 I, I don't know. It first comes into play kind of in the fourth century 
when um, the Christian church had suddenly become legal. It had been persecuted up till then, and all of a sudden it was legal. It, was, it began to get political power and great wealth. And there were a bunch of men and women in the Middle East who, I, I think, decided they didn't want to be a part of a rich and powerful place. They wanted something deeper, more spiritual. I guess nowadays we would call it going off the grid. They kind of went into the deserts, which were considered a terrible wilderness. Nobody would want to live in the wilderness like the desert. And they formed little communities of hermits that might get together once a week um, together and, and stuff. And, and they pr- created a whole a way of being out there and left, a, left a, us with a number of wonderful sayings. It's an oral literature that pa- has passed down. But one of the things they did, they realized that while they had left the cities and sometimes positions of power behind, they hadn't left themselves behind, and they were still dealing with emotions like anger and desires like greed. And acedia was one of the most evil ones that really attacked them and tried to convince them their life wasn't worth anything, that they were just wasting their time. They really used that word a lot. It was a very important word for them. So it's almost like a touch of depression. It can be. I mean, I think uh, traditionally the, the classic definition of it, the best definition actually comes from the 4th century and, and this monk describes, uh, named Evagrius, he describes it coming, sadness trails along behind it. It's like, as if you're, you're kind of imagining, well, gee, I wish things would used to be the way they, you know, you have this image of the past was better than this. Even if it wasn't, you kind of stick to that nostalgia. So sadness kind of trails along with it. It's, it's always, it always seems to accompany Ascedia eventually, but it's the boredom and restlessness and anger that really that really hit first. It's not exactly clinical depression, but but it can make you depressed. So how did you come to know Acedia? Well, I found uh, I just through kind of life circumstances, I ended up knowing a lot of uh, Benedictine monks and nuns. And I was in the, one a library in a monastery one day, and one of the monks had rec- I'd been reading a bunch of these early sayings of the desert fathers and mothers. There were women out there too. And one monk knew I was really interested. He said, "Oh, look at this book by Evagrius, You know." You know, you'll like it. And so I picked it up, and all of a sudden I found his definition of acedia, and I said, oh, my God, I've, I've experienced this ever since I was a teenager, but I never knew what to call it. And it was like this a life-changing experience. You know, and, and here's a guy who wrote, he was writing this 1,700 years ago, but all of a sudden he became my boyfriend. That's like, wow, I like this guy. I, and so he is a really interesting writer. But that's really what got me on the trail. And then being fascinated how the word has come and gone. In the plagues of the 14th century in Europe, it was used, commonly used, and then it faded out of existence. Um, and then in the early 20th century, in the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, which traces the usage of, of words, the word was marked as ob- obsolete, and after World War II, it was back in. So we needed it again. And that fascinated me, too. So I started doing research on it and collecting everything I could find and ended up writing a book. You ended up living next to this monastery, correct? Yeah. St. John's in Minnesota has a place called the Collegeville Institute where you have an apartment. And you can live there with your husband or your children. It's on the monastery grounds. And, uh, you know, it's a university, so they have a library. And you can pray. You can go to prayers with the monks if you want to. I've been there several times now. It's a great place for me to write, and and I have a lot of friends there now. And so I got sort of interested in in their life as well. With my friend who said he was suffering from this sort of mental 
blocks and everything. I said, you know, acedia is a lot like a virus. It is opportunistic. And this is a great opportunity for it to strike us because we're, we're out of whack. We're, things are not normal, we, we, and we don't know when they will be. So it, we're vulnerable now, just like we would be to a, to a virus. We're vulnerable to acedia. So how do you shake acedia? Well, you reject it actively, you know, and you can't do that with real depression. I mean, clinical depression, you can't just reject it or snap out of it. But with acedia, with, with myself, when I feel it coming on, I say, no, I don't want to go there. I'm not going there. And I find uh, prayer helps, uh, reading, uh, like reading Thomas Merton, who certainly dealt with the CD like every monk does, just doing other things, sometimes watching a good film. If I, like right now, if I'm streaming a really good film on the Criterion Network or something, I'll do something that might help me defeat that sense of hopelessness. I'm walking every morning in Makiki, climbing lots of hills for the sake of my okole, and, uh, you know, that helps physical physical exercise helps and I interviewed some people when I wrote the book I interviewed an abbot of a fairly large monastery and I said what do you do when people come to you and they say they are suffering from this and he said well every monk in the world is going to suffer from it just because the daily routine can seem so awful and oppressive and first of all I try to figure out if it's clinical depression and in that case I'll send them to a doctor but if it's just garden variety acedia I will try to get them sort of, what he said, out of the prison of themselves and their own thoughts. And I might assign them, if, they've never, if they don't do physical work, I might assign them to do some physical work, gardening or some physical work that will just take them out of their routine enough, maybe jolt them out of it. And, and he said it also helps for them to know that every other person there has experienced this at some time or another. Now, I just recently learned of uh, walking meditation. And so I'm just wondering, as, as all of us are walking more because of our situation, is there something that you can work on uh, to make sure you don't fall into this acedia well, trap? Well, just helps. I mean, it's physical exercise. You're exercising your body. And I've always found as a writer, if I, if I'm, if I have writer's block or I'm stuck on something, I'll go for a walk because somehow just the pace of walking will jostle my mind or something. There's, there's, walking has all sorts of benefits that, and I think, it loosens me mentally. Like if I am at, if I ever get back to my gym, if they've ever reopened again, when I use the bike or the elliptical trainer, I never listen to anything else. I want my mind to just wander. And I think the physical movement helps my mind as well. And walking meditation is, is wonderful. I've, I've done that actually with Buddhist um, monks and, um, and I think I know some Christian monks who, who use that practice as well. So it's not just being in the moment when you're walking it can be you know like one of the joys that i have found in makiki i'm discovering all kinds of little garden spots and flowers and trees that i'd never noticed before and that's been really fun and and again trying to be attentive to what's around you um and not just distracted by your own thoughts and then sometimes going deeper into your own thoughts and you know i solve problems uh when i'm walking and sometimes even when i'm on the in the bicycle at the gym my mind starts to wander, and I think, oh, maybe that would be a good idea. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge about this and helping us to understand what uh, you know some of us might be feeling out there. Yeah, and it's an odd word. Unless you're into monastic studies or medieval literature, chances are you, you wouldn't encounter it. And that's one reason I wrote the book, 
it actually became a bestseller, which I thought was hilarious. But, um, you know, I never expected that. But it was it was interesting. And it was published the day Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, which was really interesting. And so now you've written multiple books. So you've got a variety of themes going, right? I mean... Yeah, I've written about the Dakotas where my parents were from and where I lived in their house, actually, my mom's house for, for a long time. I grew up in Hawaii, but... Mm-hmm. but um, and then I wrote a book about Benedictines because they're really interesting people, and most people don't know much about them. They have weird stereotypes of monks and nuns, but, you know, and so I was just writing stories about them. Right, and so, but that was your, was that your first experience when you were there in uh, in D- the Dakotas? Yeah, because I, there were two monasteries, one of men and one of women, that were only 90 mm. miles away, and out there in the western Dakotas, that, that's a neighbor. That's, that's it, close. right. <laughs> Yeah, okay. there's no traffic. You can right. all, you can go anytime, and and so discovering them was like you know, being adopted by this huge family, and it's worldwide. Well, you never know where life is going to lead you, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I never. And I was raised. I mean, I went, when I was in high school, my family went to Church of the Crossroads. You know, I was sort of raised generic Protestant stuff, and I never I never knew anything about monastic people until I just they became my good friends. So you think you have a touch of acedia? We were just talking to Hawaii author and poet Kathleen Norris, who has written a number of books, including a New York Times bestseller entitled Acedia and Me, A Marriage, Monks, and a Writer's Life. Up tomorrow, uh, it's a call-in show, a shout-out for kindness, how the worst of times can bring out the best in people. Acts of Aloha, call in live or record your stories. Want to thank a healthcare worker or a first responder or someone in your community who helped you in some small way? Now's your chance. Hanaho, call our talkback line at 792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.